Welcome to The Edge, the official podcast of Bass Edge, brought to you by the world's leading underground construction equipment company, Ditchwich, proud to support the sports you love. I'm Steve Brigman, and I'm joined by the host of Bass Edge Television, Aaron Martin. Hey, Aaron, what's going on? Steve, I am excited. We actually have a fantastic show, as always, but a double feature lined up with recent U.S. Open champion, Mr. Gary Dobbins. Also, we're going to head out and answer two listeners' questions, as well as give away this week's prize winner. Oh, I always look forward to hearing from Gary. Let's go. Get away, that boy. Good job. I don't know of any other sport that offers the challenge of bass fishing day. Oh, did, did you see yes, that? Yes, I saw that. That was awesome. <laughs> Watch for the fish to pace the bait. What do you think of that, huh? Yeah. That's full contact fishing right Man. there. You're listening to The Edge, the official audio program of Bass Edge. Well, Aaron, what do you think? Those fish moved back into the creeks. It sure was chilly this morning here in the Ozarks. Boy, you've got that right, and I think the answer to that is without a doubt, absolutely. You know, this is the time of year, Steve, to where we talk so much about the thermocline and, you know, the turnover and how that uh, kind of affects, I guess, the daily habits of bass. But, you know, this is probably one of my favorite times of year uh, to really target the docks because going back to discussions that we've had on here before, um, you know, just concerning the uh, the photo period and the amount of sunlight and, and how those fish really start transitioning uh, to the shallows long before uh, we think they are as anglers. Um, you know, I really believe that we get this this runoff that's been coming in, you know, the cooler night temperatures, even the day temperatures, you know, for that matter. I think those, uh, those largemouth and those fish will move up under those docks. You know, that top three foot or so of the, of the water column now has cooled down. And I've seen it before to where, you know, on lakes like Lake of the Ozarks that has a tremendous amount of docks, They'll put that dorsal fin right up against the uh, the underside of that dock or that capsulated foam, and you can take a, a jig or a tube and skip that bait in between those little bitty cracks on those docks, and, man, they're going to eat it right there. Man, that is so true, and, and I know that, uh, well, guys, the last time you and I went out and caught them on docks, it seemed like it was... Like this, you know, we were in our 40s this morning. That's so funny. Two weeks ago, I caught him in 22 feet, and uh, I guarantee you, just like you're talking about, they're buried up under those shallower docks, wouldn't you think? Absolutely. You know, a lot of times people will ask, how do you pick a dock when you, when you get on a lake that has several mm-hmm. several docks? And I look for the ones that, if you have a row of docks, if there's one that maybe sticks out a little bit further than the rest of them, I'm definitely going to hit that dock and then probably a dock or two to each side of that because that means that there's some sort of topography of why that they have positioned that dock out a little bit further. Perhaps maybe it's over a point, maybe you have a ledge there, um, but docks, yes, definitely that are, that are in the shallow side that maybe aren't too far removed you know, from, uh, from close to the main channel because that's going to catch the first wave of those fish that have really made that transition and you know the other thing I think to keep in mind and and the reason why we're talking so much about being able to skip or pitch that that bait under those docks because unless it's a cloudy day you know let's say that sun is bearing down um, those fish that are are really high in the water column right up underneath that foam you know they're not going to give chase to come out 
uh, let's say, and, and hit a buzz bait or a spinner bait or something that's run, running alongside. So you've got to make sure that you target back into that shade and those ambush points. Um, you know, and then on days where it's a little more cloudy, maybe you have some wind chop or something like that, certainly don't hesitate to run a uh, topwater, you know, spinner bait or a shallow running crankbait or even swim a jig, you know, right down parallel alongside. Oh, man, it's a great time of year to fish for sure. But uh, we need to get away to a question. You know, our questions are kind of stacking up here, and I, th- I thought we'd throw a couple in here, and, and I'm going to pose the first one to you, Aaron, and it's pretty simple, right up your alley. And uh, it says, great show. Can I get away with braided line in the crystal clear water of Montana for my frog fishing? And that's Ed in Big Fork, Montana. Well, first off, Ed, you live in a beautiful part of the country. Uh, thanks for sending that in. Very, very good question because, you know, one of the things concerning braided line is that it's obviously highly visible. Um, One thing to keep in mind, though, when you're throwing that frog, it's going to be a moving bait. And even if you're throwing, let's say, more of the hollow body to where it's kind of sitting stationary and you're more or less just twitching it along the the tops or those mats of uh, vegetation, you know, they can't see that line. And so if it's moving or uh, even if you're throwing the hollow body, it's going to be sitting there. You know, they can't see that. It's not going to stand out, per se, uh, against the contrast of that vegetation. So my answer to that is absolutely. We use that all over the country, you know, from north where they have the clear waters all the way down to the south. And normally where you have vegetation, the water is typically going to be a little bit clearer than, you know, parts of the lake in which you don't. Frog fishing can be a couple of different things, you know, as far as the the two types of frogs are completely different. But... uh, but you're right, braided line. I mean, it is the one application where we've we've just stuck with braided line. Heck, Aaron, you even got me to put that stuff on my, some of my reels to throw frogs. Absolutely. You know, I was at the uh, the distributors show uh, this past week there at Sportsman's, uh, and one of the individuals from Lawrence, he and I were talking, and uh, of course we were. Uh, looking at the electronics DVD, and he was making mm-hmm. some feedback on that. But we were talking about drop shotting, and he just started using, you know, the braided line on drop shotting. He lives on Lake Lanier there in Georgia, which is a clear water, you know, very, very good for spotted bass and obviously doing uh, some drop shotting techniques. But that kind of goes to show, you know, Ed, that even in a stationary application, you know, a lot of times we'll just tie a small leader onto the end of it and you can get away with that as well. So I think for throwing a frog, you know, if you go to the mono, it's going to have a lot of stretch. Obviously, you're going to gain some benefit because of the buoyancy, because mono mm-hmm. floats. Um, you know, fluorocarbon sinks, so it's not going to be as applicable, I, I think, when you have heavy vegetation like that. Uh, so I think braid's going to be your best choice. Well, and that's a great point you make about drop shotting. And, of course, the advantage there is that just just absolutely no stretch. And when you're fishing, of course, here we we drop shot fish down to 50 feet. And that no stretch is absolutely incredible. But, uh, boy, we could talk about lines all day, and, and you and I discussed that. We had some different ideas, and we have fun with it. But, uh, well, we need to slip away here and visit with Mr. Gary Dobbins. Productivity. Speed. It's the best trencher ever made. Not to mention the best plow. Dumper. Tiller. Backhoe. Stump grinder. And tool carrier ever made. The Zahn. The revolution is here. 
Now you can harness the full power of your boat electronics and catch more fish. Introducing Electronics 101. Whether a beginner or more advanced, leading electronics instructor Mike Webb shows you how to get the most out of any sonar unit. Common problems and frequently asked questions are covered in detail. Electronics 101 also includes bonus deep fishing tips from industry pros. Master any brand graph. Electronics 101. Harness the full power of your boat electronics and catch more fish. I'm Boyd Duckett. Favorite on-the-water snack is no doubt peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. This week's guest has won every titled tournament west of the Rockies, with his most recent being the 2009 U.S. Open on Lake Mead. A highly diverse angler, veteran rod designer, and founder of Dobbins Rods from Yuba City, California, it's Gary Dobbins. Gary, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm glad to be here, Aaron. How are you doing today? I am doing wonderful, and especially since uh, you and I are going to have the opportunity to visit for quite some time together, as I'm, I'm going to do something a little different. I should say completely different, Gary, uh, with your permission, that is. I want to keep you on for two segments of the show, and uh, first we'll, we'll talk about fishing, and then we're going to take a short break and, and come back to talk about rods, if that sounds like a plan to you. Sounds like a game plan to me. I love being a guinea pig. Well, uh, I don't know so much about guinea pigs. See, I was kind of thinking that that gets me off the hook because you and I, quite honestly, have never had a conversation that fits within the time frames that we're given here for the interview. So that, that gives me a little bit more time to go outside of that. All righty. Sounds great. Well, you, you know, Gary, you have fished all over the country. And when you consider that, what are the main differences of how you target, you know, western bass versus those out east? You know, the water's a lot different for starters. I mean, we have a lot of big reservoirs. Uh, we have a lot more clear water. We have our desert impoundments. Um, but yet we have a natural lake like Clear Lake and tidal like our delta. But uh, for the most part, we've got a lot deeper, clearer water. And whenever I go back east, it seems like I'm fishing in, you know, really skinny water, pretty shallow stuff. You guys have a lot more vegetation in the east. Um, it's different. It really is different. And in some ways, I kind of think that fishing in the east is easier, to be honest with you. Well, and, and could you elaborate a little bit on that? Because I would, um, you know, from what experience that I've had, I would tend, tend to agree. But certainly you have a lot more experience on that situation than what I do. Well, I, I, you know, like in the West, you know, the fish, they tend to suspend a lot. Our water levels fluctuate a lot. You know, my uh, home lake of Orville was down to 260 feet last year. Um, yeah, there's, there's not 260 feet in probably most reservoirs in the, in the southeast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, we're lucky this year. We're, we're almost down 200, so what's a better year this year? Uh, oh, yeah, okay, definitely. <laughs> So, but we have that kind of deep water, so that the fish have a lot of deep water access to get away from us, and they also tend to suspend a lot with those falling with that falling water. Um, in the east, it just seems like it's shallower. To me, the fish can't get away from you. And for instance, like on our California Delta, I like to fish the flooded islands because they're shallow. Um, the fish can't get away from me. I mean, the water's like ten feet deep, so I mean, there's no way they can't go out and suspend and. 60 or 70 feet of water. I mean, every place in there is fishable. And that's the way fishing bodies of water in the east seem to me. The fish just can't get away as easy. Well, and what are some of the things that you do to combat that to where they are actually getting away from you? And you're talking about suspending. I mean, is that where the electronics come into play? Electronics come into play big time. Um, 
you know, you know, we'll relate off of humps, you know, the fish will actually, they'll move in and feed on the points and then they'll, you know, come out off the points and go out and they'll suspend and they may suspend. They may be sitting in four or 500 foot of water, but they may be 10 feet deep or they may be 40 or 50 or 60 feet deep. Um, and if they're sitting deep like that, they're very, very hard to catch. Um, if I can't call them up on a, on a topwater bait or a jerk bait, you know, pretty much I don't hardly fool with them, to be honest. They get out there, they, they're really not in a feeding mode, they're really tough to catch. So I, for the most part, if, I, if they're not sh- suspended shallow, I don't mess with them. Well, and, you know, I, I don't want to spend too much time concerning the, the hashing out of, of how you did it on, on the U.S. Open, but I do want to spend some time talking about, you know, Lake Mead, and that, that kind of sets up exactly what you were talking about. You know, over the course of, of a couple of days, um, you know, your 13-pound bag, I mean, that's, that's a tremendous bag for that type of fishery. How are you targeting, you know, fish, let's say, on the Lake Meads of the world? Well, you know, Lake Mead, you know, I fished very, very well, and you throw in some really good stops and a couple of really good lucky bites, and you can add it up to 13 pounds. You know? <laughs> Lake Mead is Lake Mead is brutal. Um, if I was to say how long would I have to fish here again before I caught 13 pounds, it might be a really long time. Um, but that was an awesome tournament. But Lake Mead is one of our, you know, one of our more rare fisheries. I mean, that's the desert lake. Our desert lakes, they're really unfertile. They're very, very clear. You can see 30 feet, and in some of our desert impoundments, you can see 40 feet. Um, it's just gin clear water. Um, there's not a lot of fish. It's really, really tough. But, you know, in the West, we've got some awesome fisheries like the Clear Lake and Delta. And, I mean, we've just got we've got a lot of water here that are great fisheries. The desert impoundments are just not good. Um, but how do I target those? Um, for the most part, when I go to the desert, it's all to me about covering water. I fish shallow. There's not a lot of fish, so I, can, I just run the banks like a madman, and I just fish super aggressive, and I pick off the aggressive fish that are on the bank to eat. It's a very simple way to look at it, and I and I kind of really can't make it much easier than that. I, I, I try to burn my, my 101 Minn Kota. I try to burn it up in a day, and that's just what I do. Well, and, and speaking of burning up, you know, that's the other, I think, factor that comes into play, especially, you know, there for you at the U.S. Open. But when you're covering that much water, not only, you know, can you kind of get down a little bit mentally, but physically it's demanding because of the con- brutal conditions that you're faced with. You know, we had uh, the temperatures at the lake. The lake is always hotter. I mean, Henderson's always four or five degrees hotter than Vegas, and the lake is, you know, another four or five or eight degrees hotter. It's all black, basically a black rock out there around the lake. It's hot. I mean, the temperatures of the ramp this year were 118. We had one day at 122. But, I mean, we were in, we were in the upper 115s and up every day. Um, it's brutal hot. I got dehydrated the first day. I made a, a very bad mistake i drank a lot of tea and had a lot of caffeine in it and the caffeine just i guess it helps to dehydrate you it really i was sick the last part of the first day through the night and even into the start of the second day um but you know i finally asked you know i was really pounding the water and i've got there and i've gotten trouble there before with dehydration and the heat you know i'm not a heat stroke but my partner the second day he actually threw up for an hour at the end of the day right before we had to come in i mean he was i i didn't know he's gonna make it it's brutal conditions when you think about fishing in temperatures 115 or 118 degrees 122 degrees saying that and being there it's not the same um and i usually carry a little extra insulation on me anyway so uh, <laughs> for fat guys it's a little bit rougher even 
<laughs> well, uh, you know, talking about that, how how do you keep yourself focused and and continuing to to move on? And you know, does the fact of of you being dehydrated? I mean, that can present some problems in and of itself of not knowing when you may need to, you know, call it quits and go in. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the old saying down there is, just, you know, once you're thirsty, it's too late. You know, you have to just constant. you have to just a priority. It's part of the day. You're always drinking. You have to always you drink and drink and drink and drink. And water is the best. Um, we do drink a little bit of Gatorade, but water is the best. I mean, I, I had an EMT just basically give me a a little lecture on the dock this year when I came in and not, was not feeling well and he seen pee bottle in there in the boat. Um, you got to drink a lot. And I just, it's easy for me to stay focused because, I mean, I just, you know, I love to fish. I'm there. Running the bank, I think, makes it easier, too, because I'm always casting and doing something and going. Um, the way Aaron Martins was fishing, or Aaron Martins from California, just now the transplant to Alabama, of course. Sure. He was catching his fish 65 foot of water. That would be very, very hard for me to do, you know, in those conditions. But if you're running the bank, you know, I just say, I just say I'm going fishing. It's kind of the way I look at it. I mean, I make it really, really simple. I'm beating the bank. I've got areas that I want to beat, but, um, and I just move and I just keep moving. I just keep casting. So I'm always doing something and it's hot. And I, I wear this big old floppy hat. Uh, I actually bought it from Cabela's. I can't think of what it is, but I stick it in the water. It holds water really good. And I put it on my head, and I do that probably every five minutes, and it does help. Well, certainly it has to. And you know, kind of shifting gears on into, you know, the the fall is, I guess, the official start of fall is really behind us right now. When you look at some of the lakes that you actually like to target on a little more frequent basis, what are some of the structure or conditions that Western anglers need to be keying on this time of year? Well, you know, we uh, technically we are in fall, but, you know, we don't know it yet because we're still having 100-plus degree days here. Um, it's still hot. It's still summertime. But as we get into the fall, um, you know, the fish will start coming out on, you know, moving out a lot on structure, um, like, for instance, Clear Lake. I mean, you'll fish a lot of break lines and structure. Clear Lake's a shallow natural lake. Um, it's actually built on a volcano, so pretty much everything around there is, you know, lava rock-type structure. Um, it's got a lot of grass. The fish tend to get in the grass a lot, and of course, late in the season, like this, we've got a lot of grass growth, and it hasn't started cooling yet to where it's dying off, so the fish are really in that grass. So we're doing a lot of top water fishing. We're doing a lot of uh, flipping and what we call punching is punching down through the grass and through the mats, um, and it's just kind of uh, just keep going. I mean, really, it's it's. It's a kind of a tough time of year for us. This is not one of our better times. We wait. We like that water to start cooling and then fish to start really, you know, chasing the shad, chasing the pond smelt, um, really kind of feeding up, and we're just not there yet. Well, and, you know, I know, speaking about chasing the pond smelt and that, I know that one of your favorite baits to throw is a, is a jerk bait or a, often known as a rip bait as well. Why is that? You know, it's because you can get a reaction, a reaction strike out of the fish. Really, I mean, um, we, all of our all of our lakes around here has got either redfin shad or pond smelt or both, and pond smelt is is pretty popular. And uh, they tend to live deeper this time of year. But um, a jerk bait is just a crippled or injured bait fish. I mean, you're mimicking you're mimicking something that is crippled or injured, and you know, bass being a predator that they are. I mean, they, uh, it's, you can get a reaction strike out of them when they're not in a feeding mood. They're not hungry. They're not wanting to eat something. But if that thing stops in front of their face and goes to dart off like it's crippled or injured, I mean, they just can't help it. They're a predator. And uh, it's just 
and it's fun. Stoner jerk bait's fun. I mean, you get to just make a million cash. You get to cast and reel and jerk and, you know, and catch them. It's awesome. Well, and, you know, that leads me to my next question is that there are different schools of thought on kind of when jerk baits are, let's say, effective. And some will say that it's going to, you know, lean more towards the cold water situation. Others say warm water. In reality, you've actually caught fish on them year round, though. You know, it, I, I throw them year round. I mean, my favorite bait is the Stacy 90 made by Lucky Craft. I throw that bait year round. Um, in the wintertime, it's. It's a it's a it's a winner. I mean that bait's a winning bait for me. Um, winter and early spring, I just can't. I just everywhere I go, I've got one laying there. Um, but it's a year-round bait. I mean they'll bite it. It's it's crippled or injured bait fish imitation. I mean they they can't not bite it. It's it's a great technique. It's a, I think it's a very very simple technique because there's no really right or wrong way to throw a jerk bait. You know you pop it, you pause it, you pop 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 pause. If you want to pop it two or three times or five times or never stop it, they'll all work. Um, the couple of tips that I like to tell people is make sure that uh, the bait is tuned 100% perfect. That way, if you rip it really hard, you know you'll get the right action out of the bait. You can get the depth that you need out of the bait. Probably the that's probably the biggest mistake people make. And the second one is, you know, on your pause, put a little bit of slack back in your line where that bait actually stops and comes to rest. So it stops in front of them, and the next time you pop it to go off, I mean, you are going to get a reaction strike. If you keep tension on the line, the bait continues to creep forward a little bit in the water, and you won't get a fraction as many bites. Anyone can be a jerkbait fisherman. My son was an expert at five years old. Well, and I think that's good advice, and I think, you know, you were mentioning concerning the tuning. Are these things that you will take each individual bait and check maybe in a body of water or a swimming pool along those lines? I do. I actually tune them before uh, before I, the tournament starts. I'll always have my baits tuned. Usually when I, if I'm going to put them in the box, I take them out and I tune them. And it's critical. I mean, a tuned bait's critical. Crank bait or jerk bait, they, if they're not tuned, you don't get the right action. You don't get the, You don't get the maximum depth out of them. And what about as far as, you know, the suspending models versus, let's say, the floating, you know, that, that rise back up to the top? How do you make that uh, determination of, of when to use which bait? You know, I mean, uh, that's a very good question, really. It's, uh, I tend to, to weight mine a lot where they'll actually have a very, very slow sink rate. And I use that bait most of the time early in the year to fish a little bit deeper. I'm trying to get that bait down a little bit deeper. And... I actually made the bait with Lucky Craft that's uh, a version 3 Stacy 90 just for that. It's got a really slow sink. Um, when would I use a floating bait? What if I start to fish up over the top of grass, or I might jerk it down and then let it float up, you know, over the top of the grass, or in real shallow water conditions. Uh, most of the time, I like a suspend bait or a slow sink bait. You know, most of the time, I like those better than a floating bait. Well, a couple of quick questions here before we get out of here and get on to the next segment. Describe your ideal conditions for throwing a jerkbait. Oh, man, a nice south wind blowing, you know, wintertime. Nice south wind blowing, overcast skies, maybe a little drizzle. And, uh, oh, man, I'm telling you, there's nothing but there's nothing better. I mean, it's <laughs> the time. To, it's the time. Give me those low-pressure fronts. Them fish are active. Your big fish are much more active in those low-pressure fronts. Um Spinnerbait or jerkbait? I mean, there's just those those two baits put a lot of money in your pockets. And final question: Describe the jerkbait rod and really why it's such a, a vital part of the equation. You know, what really throwing a jerkbait or a crankbait? I guess. 
Well, I mean, there's a couple things. I like to have enough power in the rod to drive the bait so it doesn't tumble. Um, you know, some of the baits, some of the baits will tumble if they're balsa wood. But like a Stacy 90, I mean, you can just drive that bait. It casts very, very well. So I mean, I can make a long cast. Um, I like a mod fast action. I don't want anything super fast. The mod fast action will work the bait better. Um, it's a lot easier on me. I mean, I can just get a routine pop, pop, pause, pop, 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 pause. And it's just all about the way it works the bait. And then once, you know, a fish eats it, it's a little bit slow to load. It's, uh, it's more like a rubber band effect. It's, uh, it does it. A real fast rod would rip the hooks right out of them. A real slow loading rod, it just loads really slow and it just, you know, kind of a stretch factor there. Um, and it doesn't rip the hooks out of the fish. Once, And especially when you get a fish close to the boat and he makes that lunge next to the boat, it's more forgiving. It loads slow, so it just kind of uh, loads, 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 and it, it just stops, and it doesn't rip the hooks out of the fish. Um, mod fast action is by far the best action for crankbaits and jerkbaits, and it's the only time I throw it. I don't throw it on spinnerbaits. I don't throw it on anything but crankbaits and jerkbaits, but I'm a a complete believer in a mod fast action. You need that little slow reaction in that rod to keep from taking it away from fish or pulling the hooks out of the fish. Well, Gary, with comments like that, it's no wonder you are indeed the rod expert. Speaking of which, let's let's take a quick break, and if you'll hold the line, we're going to come back and talk rods on the second half of the hour. Now you can order Bass Edge Seasons 1 and 2 on DVD. Own the best resource for tips and techniques in bass fishing is host Aaron Martin tackles lakes across the country with the industry's top pro anglers, including Edwin Evers, Boyd Duckett, Alton Jones, and Pam Martin-Wells. The two sets include all 25 episodes with never-before-seen footage, over three hours of bonus pro angler interviews, bloopers, and highlights. Each two-disc set is just $19.95. Call 1-888-390-8780 or order online at BassEdge.com. Man, Aaron, it's great to hear from Gary. Uh, seems like the last time we saw him was down in Florida, but, uh, man, I just cannot get enough of hearing from these Western anglers. I always learn so much. Well, and, and in his case, you know, he has won every title tournament west of the Rockies, and, of course, you know, with his most recent victory there on the uh, – the U.S. Open, unbelievable conditions, and he really just kind of ran away with the field. But I think the interesting point, you know, getting back to on the education part of it, because you said it best, you can always learn something from others. And I think Gary positions himself to always pick up something, whether it be from, you know, his, his amateur partner or individuals mm-hmm. that, that he comes in contact with on a daily basis. You know, how many times, uh, you know, just as an outdoor writer and a producer of the show, I can't tell you how many times I've been in the boat with uh, with an angler and I with a with a really top pro angler and I've caught a fish and he wants to know what what you catch him on where he, where was he at the best folks never quit learning they never keep uh, they never uh, quit gathering information and. They look for opportunities to talk to other anglers about fishing. Well, you're right. I mean, and it, that reminds me of uh, Jay McNamara's famous story that he wrote about in his book, uh, you mm-hmm. know, when fishing with Denny Brower. Uh, the first thing Denny wanted to know, he went back there and he looked at his jig, you know, and, and there are stories like that, and that is how 
you are able to to learn something and you know to put more fish in the boat. But I think the interesting thing concerning Gary's interview um, was when he brought up about fishing out west and the fallacy that you know you have to target these deep fish and you always have to drop shot and you know use these small finesse baits and and things like that. Gary doesn't like to do that, and he pointed that out. He was very adamant. He's like, you know, I am not going to be the one. I'm not your guy to be sitting out there in 50, 60 feet of water, you know, over top of him. He said, I'm a traditionally a power fisherman, and that's what I like to do. And that ties into so many things that we've talked about, you know, concerning fishing your strengths and your personality. And he went out to a lake that is traditionally known, you know, for deep fishing, caught him on the bank, and really, uh, you know, won by a significant margin. You know, as, we, as we've said here before, uh, you know, it's great to hear about the Western anglers and their techniques, but it all kind of comes back to bass or bass. And they're going to be behaving in much the same ways that uh, fish in other parts of the country are. And, you know, by him catching those fish on the bank, I think it's a great illustration of that. It is, it is. And I think we can take solace as anglers that when we go to a new body of water, that you can apply some of the very same tick you know, tactics and techniques that you would use on your home lake. You know, it kind of goes with fishing a new body of water, too. Just remember, you know, a lot of the things that you found, you know, take what you know to that new body of water, be willing to adjust, and, you know, you'll find a lot of the same things that happen. And just because the local folks aren't catching them in a certain way doesn't mean you can't either. So uh, think a little outside of the box. And uh, as a matter of fact, Aaron, our question this week is about fishing new bodies of water. Well, Steve, why don't I read the question? I'm going to let you uh, jump on this. Uh, This actually comes in from Eddie in Greensboro, North Carolina. Eddie wants to know, I just started fishing a new body of water. Is it true that I should start by fishing the points, both shallow to deep and deep to shallow, to help get my first piece of the puzzle, so to speak? It is a new lake, and I am having trouble getting fish in the boat. Thanks very much, and that is from Eddie. Steve, why don't you do the honors and get us started? Well, Eddie, I can identify with you having trouble uh, getting fish in the boat on a new lake. Sometimes it can take you a little while to figure it out, but uh, stick with it, and you do un- you do seem to understand that it's a puzzle. And point is, you're right, an excellent place to start. Uh, I like to start on a new lake taking a map. And, and trying to find areas that, that are similar to where I've caught fish on other lakes. You know, points that uh, come out near creek bends or near deep water might be a little better than, than, than some other points. But today it was 45 degrees here where we're at. And uh, I imagine it's a little warmer in North Carolina. But, you know, as far as right now, it's fall fishing. And, those shad are, for the most part, migrating back into those coves. So, you know, actually the coves are probably a really good place to fish if you're going like this week or in the next upcoming few weeks. Wouldn't you say, Aaron? I think I think you couldn't have uh, pointed out better. You know, I like picking a major creek arm or a cove that comes back in because what happens there is you can start, um, and, and once you start having success, then you can go and duplicate that in other parts of the lake. So I prefer to pick on kind of the, the longer creek arms or the coves, so to speak, those shad are definitely moving shallow, and, and the bass are not too far behind, and they're going to be somewhere, you know, within that vicinity. But know where they're going, know where they're at, and kind of know where they're going. That's the two, I guess, pieces that we always work with when we're talking about seasonal conditions. And the other thing concerning his points um, and question pertaining specifically to points, understand that there are various types of points. You know, you have a, a basically a primary point which is going to be out on the main lake 
then you have what's called secondary points to to where as that major creek arm or that cove goes back into you're going to have little indentations and other arms and ditches that come back you know in and out of uh of that creek so there's a lot of different i think ways to target points but start in those longer creek arms check that out and then work your way all the way to the back fish front to the back and then you can go and duplicate that across the lake and and eddie i don't know how big a lake you're looking at but uh i remember many years ago uh i sat out at rick klein's house and he drew a little map of the lake and explained how he approached a new lake and he essentially tried to apply whatever uh seasonal pattern was going on like right now you know we're talking about uh, shad back in the coves. And he carves out one of the big arms or one of the big, you know, uh, parts of the lake and makes that the lake. And he decides he's going to fish just this area, break it down into something small, and then fish all of the different types of things in there and then possibly find a pattern and branch out into other parts of the lake from there. Well, certainly uh, Rick Clun does it. You know, he is obviously has the the uh, the record to show. So take his advice. And Eddie, thanks for sending in that question. Yeah, that was. It's always good here from North Carolina, and uh, we're all over the place here from Montana today, and Gary from out west. But uh, speaking of Gary, he's not only an extremely good angler, but he is a heck of a rod maker. And you and I know that because we've been throwing his rods. So uh, let's break away for a quick minute here and come back and talk to Gary Dobbins about rods. Finally, a safe and convenient way to access any trailer boat. Introducing the new Flex Step by MegaWare Keelguard. Forget climbing over the sides ever again. Mount a Flex Step on the side of your trailer for easy access to rod lockers and tackle compartments with no boarding. Or bolt the high quality aluminum Flex Step to your trailer's tongue and enter your craft without ever getting wet again. Completely flexible, great for cleaning windshields, and the hollow tube doubles as a storage area. Available at major marine centers or learn more via the web. Welcome back to The Edge, brought to you in part by Ditch Witches Zon, establishing a new standard in trencher power and versatility. All right, welcome back to The Edge, and as promised, Gary has stuck around uh, to have really what I'm looking forward to, and that's going to be an ongoing discussion of rods. And I think, Gary, for today's practical purposes, maybe we'll just start at the beginning and, and talk about some of the basic information, um, and then in future episodes, we can really dive off into some of the more technique-specific uh, rods and things like that that anglers need to be aware of. Sounds great. Well, why don't, uh, I guess, why don't you kind of tell us your background? I know you had uh, a lot of history, really, in the rod designing um, category long before you ever broke away and started kind of your own rod company. Yeah, you know, I've always made custom rods. I mean, a good buddy of mine that lived by me for years, and uh, he actually ran off to Kentucky, so I'm still kind of mad at him. But Lynn Williams, my good buddy, was uh, a custom rod builder, and he kind of really got me started on really tweaking rods a lot. Um, I've started many rod companies. I actually built my first rod with Abu Garcia in uh, 1989, long, long time ago. And it's, I've been with many companies. I've helped, you know, a lot of design through the years. And now I'm doing it for myself. Well, and, you know, speaking of that, as you have developed a lot of rods down through the years, what would you say, and I know this is certainly present in Dobbins rods, what would you say are some of the things that most anglers take for granted or overlook when making a rod purchase? 
You know, I think probably the biggest thing they overlook is balance, and balance leads to sensitivity. Um, is that's probably the most. And uh, I don't care what rod it is. I mean, to fight the tip up, you're really hurting yourself. I think that's the biggest mistake that most anglers make. And when you say fight the tip up, you mean you're constantly having to because it's out of balance and wanting to lean down. Uh, uh, yes, I didn't say that very well, but yes, basically you're always having to lift the tip. The tip, the rod should just lay in your hand. It should float in your hand. Um, if it's a good rod that's balanced properly, when you pick it up, it'll feel like it weighs a feather. It's going to weigh, you know, within reason close to what the other rods do, but it's going to feel like it's a feather because it just rests in your hand because it's balanced. Well, I know that was really one of the things that, that I can tell you because obviously, uh, you know, we have all Dobbins rods and, and love them to death, but, you know, speaking of which, when you put that reel on there, if you're constantly having to fight that tip up, you know, that's that's going to be fatiguing, A, for one, you know, on you as an angler, but also, you know, that's just that much more energy that you have to exert, and chances are you're probably going to miss a few more bites. Yeah, and the, and it really plays into the sensitivity issue, too. And you also have to use pretty good prod, pretty good materials if you're going to balance the rod out. You can't use, you know, a bare-bones graphite and balance it out unless you want to put, you know, two or three ounces in the butt section, which I'm not into doing that. Well, how do anglers, you know, when they are going after their first rod purchase, how do you know if, you know, what type of graphite and what type of components and, and how do you compare and contrast as far as what's out there? Because like we know, there's there's a lot of, you know, long-term rod companies that are out there, but there's also a lot of these individuals that are kind of making rods, you know, in their garage type thing. Yeah, and, and rods vary a lot. And it starts with the materials in the blank. Um, the blank is everything. I mean, that's that's where you start. That's where you start with your balance. That's where you're going to get your sensitivity. That's, I mean, the blank is the key. If you skimp on the blank, the rod's not going to be very good. Um, that's where I start. But as the guys that come in, depends on what they're looking for. If they're looking for a crankbait rod, you know, they need more of a mod fast action. They don't want fast action. But let's talk about jig rods, and, you know, pretty much everything is, for the most part, fast actions. Um, you know, they react faster. They, you know, when you set up on a fish, they, they load faster. Um, so it's just a much, it's just a much better rod for everything except for going crankbaits and jerkbaits. Um, components, you know, you need good guides, you know, cork. I, li I like cork a lot better than I like a Hypalon or foam, even though a lot of the companies are going to foam and Hypalon simply because of price. It's much, much cheaper to use foam than it is to use a good grade of cork. Um, good reel seats, you know, does your, does your seat shaking or, you know, when you, when you tighten it down in the seat, does it set in there firm and smooth with no movement? You don't want any movement at all. That's distracting. Um, some of the seats are made loose. Just good components, good materials, um, and a balanced rod. Well, and then, of course, you know, one thing that transfers over into that is going to be, you know, the rod guides. How many of those do you have on there? And I know you kind of have a theory that's, that's behind that as well. You know, I like a lot of guides. If You know, if you try to skip on guides, you, you actually can save weight on the rods by getting rid of guides, but you'll end up on, you know, on your cast, the line will slap the blank. So it's going to be slowing it down. You're going to get a resistance there. So I like a lot of, I like a lot of guides, you know, on my blanks. It's a little bit harder to balance. It costs more money, but you know, there's a function. When, when I load that rod up, I don't want, when I'm fighting that fish, I don't want that line touching that blank. I position the guides where that line is never touching the blank on the cast or anytime I'm loading the rod. And that's getting getting cheap in guides is not a good idea. Well, and Gary, our final question I want to throw out to you. Let's say angler that's on limited budget, which 
you know, most of us are, and they only have the ability to purchase a couple different rods. What are your suggestions for what that angler needs to to purchase to where, it, you know, it's going to be able to cover a variety of things, maybe flipping, pitching, you know, that type of stuff all the way to a spinnerbait? And I had a great answer until you come up with the flip, flipping pitching. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, let, well, let's go into that. <laughs> I would say, you know, I mean, in most cases, you know, a flipping rod's a specialty rod, so I think you need that. But as far as most anglers, they can get by with, they need something with like a medium action, something with like a medium heavy action, and whatever length they like. I tend to like a little bit longer rods. I'm really into the 7.3 and 7.4 lengths because of good product. There's a lot of advantages to having length and rods. But if you get a medium heavy, you can fish your jigs, your spinner baits. You can throw crank baits on it. It's not ideal, but you can. You can Carolina rig fish with it. I mean, you're just horny toads. I mean, you can just do so many things. And then the medium action would take care of, you know, your smaller crankbaits, um, you know, your lighter line stuff, you know, worms, lighter jigs, quarter-ounce jigs, stuff like that. But a medium and a medium heavy in your favorite length, fast action, I think is the best place to start. Well, Gary, thank you so much for your time. I'm looking forward to our future discussions when we're going to dive off into, because I think you have something like, how, how many models actually do you have now? I actually have 53, um, but that's not that's not very many, really. It um, it actually sounds like a lot, but you know, one guy's gonna like a six six rod, one guy's gonna like a seven foot rod, one guy's gonna like a seven four. This guy likes a seven six, this guy likes an eight footer, and we're not even into the actions yet. We're just talking length. So I'm trying to make something for everyone. Well, and that's why I think it's so uh, relevant for you to be talking about this very thing because we need to understand as anglers you know what does that mean length action all the different components that go into that to ultimately help make us better anglers but gary before we go where can our listeners find out additional information also uh, be able to look at the at the product and uh, kind of see for themselves what's going on at dobbins you know the best way is just is dobbinsrods.com and it's d-o-b-y-n-s rods.com we've got a pretty good website and it's uh we're continuing to update it daily well there you go and uh certainly if anyone has any questions they can certainly reach gary through bass edge website under the ask the pro section to get a question sent out and he'll be happy to answer any questions concerning fishing or fishing rods in the meantime gary i look forward to next time and uh once again best of luck in the future and thanks so much for being part of the edge hey thanks for the invitation When I'm fishing in a tournament, time is critical. I need fast, easy access to my lures. My Cook's Go-To Tackle System keeps my bait organized, tangle-free, and within easy reach. It installs in minutes under any deck lid, maximizing the storage space in my boat. And its durable construction lasts even through the harshest conditions. Get organized with Cook's Tackle System by calling 1-888-390-8780. Hi, this is Mark Zona, and you're listening to The Edge. Well, Aaron, that's about it for today. But before we get away, why don't you give something away? Absolutely. I'd like to throw out a congratulations to Donald of Hollywood, Florida, who will receive a Season 1 DVD set. So congratulations, Donald. And uh, for everybody else, keep sending those entries in because you too can have a chance to win some great prizes right here. Well, thanks, Donald, and add Florida to the to the to the geographic. Yeah, this uh, is like geographical chicken soup here, you know. <laughs> that's right. But uh, good to hear from Donald. Great to hear from Florida, as always. 
Uh, and uh, I know we got another great show for next week. Who do we have, Aaron? We do have another good show. We've got Angler of the Year from the FLW Series, Tom Mann Jr., who is going to be hmm. talking about the topic of consistency. So uh, certainly look forward to that. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but be sure to look for us on Bass Edge Television, where we are seen each and every day on the World Fishing Network. Also, log on to BassEdge.com for the latest tips from the pros and a chance to win some great prizes. Until next time, I am Aaron Martin, and for Steve Brigman and the rest of the Bass Edge crew, we look forward to seeing you next week right here on The Edge. Bass Edge has been brought to you in part by Ditch Witch, Mega Wear Keel Guard, O'Reilly Auto Parts, Super Start Batteries, Mother's Polishes, Waxes and Cleaners, and Legend Boats. For more information on Bass Edge, including our television show, training materials, e-newsletter, and podcast, please visit www.bassedge.com. Be sure to join us next week on The Edge. <laughs>